Good morning, Woodland Hills. It's good to see all you here this morning. It's good just to know that you guys are tuning in and are, are part of this time where we come together and worship together and uh, hear from the Word together. I'm Greg Boyd, and uh, I'm a teaching pastor here. Hope you're having a good summer, enjoying this. Uh, this is we're in the late the dog days of August, so. Savor all the summer moments you can, because you know what's coming next, right? Carpe diem, seize the day, because it's, uh, it's not going to get... Uh... Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Anyone, anyone else want to give me anything? You yeah, can feel free to come up here. Got if, if God leads you to you know, put a $100 bill up here, just go kind of do that. You can be like one of those street preachers, put a can out there, just start preaching, and hope people... Ah, you got to make a living somehow. So we're uh, talking about how uh, if we're called to live in love, we are, if we hope to do that, that we've got to leave all judgment to God. And that means we've got to trust God as judge. Talked about that last week. So we're in this kind of a sub-series here where we're looking at the judgment of God or the wrath of God and uh, asking, is, is, is God's character trustworthy in all this? Can we, can we trust this God who is judge and who the Bible talks about bringing his wrath. In fact, the title of this message is The Wrath of God. The Wrath of God. I feel like it says, The Wrath of God. We're going to talk about that. So we saw last week that, that um, uh, the judgment day, which is also referred to in the New Testament as this day of wrath, that for folks in the New Testament, that wasn't some theoretical concept or it wasn't something that was way in the distant future. Uh, rather, when they thought about the judgment of God or this coming day of wrath or the second coming, all of that, they thought it was something that was going to happen in their lifetime. They lived with that expectation. And um, they expressed it in this apocalyptic imagery we talked about last week. Which basically, it's not meant to be literal, the sun going dark and the moon turning to blood and stars falling from the sky and all the rest. But it's meant to communicate the world as you know it is about to come to an end. And for Jesus and the the first century disciples, um, the early disciples of the New Testament, this happened in 70 A.D. It was culminated in 70 A.D. when the Romans ransacked Jerusalem and kicked the Jews out of out of Jerusalem and, and destroyed the temple and all the rest. The world as they know I came to an end. And it's described as, you know, the Lord coming back in clouds and all the rest. That's just kind of connoting this, this, this imagery. Um, but it means that we also then are supposed to live with the awareness that the world as we know it could end at any moment because it could. And it's a way of staying awake to the temporariness, the, the iffiness of, of this whole world order. Not to get too comfortable in this present world order. This isn't the permanent home that we're looking for. This is the way it is right now. The current order of things is not how God intended it. It will someday be that, but right now it's pretty messed up. Would you agree with that? It's pretty messed up. But live with the awareness that this present world order could come to an end like a thief in the night, Jesus says. And then he says... Learn the lesson of the figs. You know that summer is coming when summer things start to happen, when things come to life. But by the same means, you'll know that winter is coming when things start to die. When things start to fade, when things start to crumble, when things start to shake, when solid things are no longer solid, and dependable things are no longer dependable, and 
It seems like the world that you're familiar with is fading away and increasingly you're moving into a world that's unfamiliar. Well, stay awake. Stay awake. And live with that anticipation. So, so I, I want to go deeper in talking about the wrath of God uh, this morning. And, and I, I want to look at the nature. What is the nature of God's wrath? I, 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 I suspect that there's few things in the Bible that are more misconstrued than this idea about God's wrath. When a lot of people think about the judgment of God, I think they think of something like this. Here's this far side ca- cartoon. Uh, this is God at his computer. <coughs> and I don't know if you can see this, but he's got his finger on the smite button. He's just about ready to hit the smite button. And so this poor sucker is going to have this piano fall on his head and die or whatever. That's the idea is that God, you know, he's, he just sits, sits around and he's got his cosmic computer. And when he's bored or whatever suits his fancy, he just presses the smite button. And there's a lot of people, I think this is how they think about God. When there's a disaster that happens, it's got to be God that did it. The hurricanes, the mudslides, the droughts, the famines, the floods, all of it. Diseases, cancer, malaria. It's all God doing it. God does it all. In fact, is this, anyone know, is this still in our insurance policies where they will say, barring an act of God? See, that always bugs me. The one place where we still can mention God in a legal document and, and use it to blame him for all the crap in the world. It's like, how is that? You know, I shouldn't go down this road, but I'm going to. But, you know, since everyone is so easily offended today, you know, it, I find that offensive. You're, you're sailing, some of you are, you're attacking my religion when you say God is responsible for all the nasty stuff. We should sue the insurance companies. Man, there'd be a killing there. Somebody worked that out, all right? All right, we just figured out how to pay for our new development or whatever. <laughs> an, an, an act of God. He's always got his finger on the smite button. Uh, now, see, this picture that we have there on the far side, it's funny, it's comical, but it's wrong on two accounts. First of all, it's wrong because... God doesn't go around smiting people. He doesn't send disasters. And the reason I know that is because Jesus, when he walked around in Galilee and all the rest, never once did he send a disaster. Does anyone recall Jesus ever sending a catastrophe on somebody or smiting somebody or inflicting them with some kind of disease? No. In fact, he does the opposite. He spends his whole ministry ministering to people who are suffering disasters, natural disasters, you're lame, you can't see, you're blind, leprosy or whatever. And he manifests God's will by healing these people, freeing them from those disasters. Instead of attributing all the crap to God, Jesus and the whole New Testament, they attribute all the evil in nature to fallen principalities and powers. Nature has been corrupted in, in their view. So don't go blaming this on God. God is not to blame. Someone wrote a book with that title. You may want to read it. Um, so the first thing is that God doesn't send disasters. Second thing is this. It is true that God does bring judgments on people. He's a judge. And um, while that's true, this isn't how God judges. And so I want to look at how exactly does God bring judgment? And what's going on when God brings a judgment on somebody? Okay, before we get into some scripture, I, I, I want you to know this. Uh, ethicists, people who think about ethics and philosophize about ethics and stuff, they, they, they distinguish between two kinds of judgment. The first we could call legal judgments. 
Or sometimes the ethicists refer to that as forensic judgment or judicial judgments. And then there's natural judgments, which sometimes ethicists refer to as, as organic judgments. So a, a, a legal judgment is simply when there's a legal authority who imposes a sentence on you for some crime that you've done. So you're, you're going, driving too fast, and the cop pulls you over, and you get a speeding ticket, and you got to pay a fine. That's a legal judgment. It's imposed by an authority, the policeman, and uh, um, uh, he, he just gives you the fine. And there's no, no, notice this, there's no intrinsic or natural or organic relationship between the crime and the punishment. There's no relationship between you driving fast and now you having to pay $250 or whatever you have to pay. <coughs> it's simply an arbitrary punishment that's imposed. That's legal judgments. But then there's natural judgments. And natural judgments are when the punishment for a crime is simply a natural consequence of the crime itself. No one has to impose these kind of judgments on you. Rather, it's something we bring on ourselves. And see, whereas with legal, in, in legal terms, when you violate the law, you're sinning against the law, against the authority. So the authority has the right to punish you. But in natural judgments, you're really just sinning against reality, and reality punishes you. So if you're driving too fast, and you're driving reckless, and you don't see the sharp curve that's coming up ahead of you, so you end up rolling your car and totaling your car and breaking your leg, there's a sense in which your totaled car and your broken leg is punishment for having been driving reckless. The, 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 the punishment's built into the crime. And the reality of things, given the laws of physics, given all that we know about automobiles and all we know about road construction and all the rest, knowing all of that, here's, here, here, here's what's real. If you go too fast, you're going to have an accident, or you, at least you increase the, the possibility of having an accident. And if you ignore that reality, you'll crash up against that reality. So, so in legal judgments, you crash up against or you clash with, with, with legal authorities, but in organic judgments, you just clash with reality. And that is your, you know, your, your punishment. It's a natural punishment. It's not something that is arbitrary imposed on you. So here's the thing. In the Bible, we find God's judgment being spoken of in both ways, as legal ter- in both in legal terms and in natural terms. But I want us to see this. Natural, the whole purpose for legal laws is to serve natural laws. Follow me on this. The the natural punishment is a more fundamental thing than legal punishments. Legal punishments are there in service to natural punishments. So, for example, with the speed limit, uh, why do we have laws that tell us how fast we can and cannot go? Gosh, I thought this was a free country. Here they are telling me I can only go over 55. I have to keep it to 55. Why do we have those laws? And then we enforce them with fines. The answer is that... um, we know that, in fact, there's been a lot of studies on this, that for every five miles an hour faster people drive, X amount of people get injured or die. That, that when you drive fast, you have less control, given the reality of cars and given the reality of our physical limitations and all the rest. We bump up against reality in harsh ways when we drive too fast. And so the government says, comes up with a kind of reasonable expectation and says, well, keep it to 55. Um, 
In fact, when they, in the 70s, went from 55 as a federal limit and raised it to 70 on highways and stuff, they calculated and did all these studies and stuff about how many more people would die in car accidents because of this, and it was quite a bit, but they deemed it worth it. It's worth it. We as a society, it's true, we as a society just decide that uh, for the extra 15 miles an hour that we get to drive, you know, yeah, there'll be hundreds of people that'll die because of it, but it won't be me, and so we keep on driving. But see, you find that offensive, well, then you ask, well, why are we doing 55? Because it'd be safer to go 45. I mean, at some point, yeah, just having an automobile, an automobile, you know that a certain number of people are going to die as a result of it, but we accept the convenience, and that's just the price you pay. That's how these things work, folks. But I want us to see that the whole purpose for the legal is the natural. Every good law is there if it's really a good law to protect us against ourselves. For when we're too stupid or when we're just too operating out of our self-interest or for whatever reason, when we're running up against reality and doing things that are dangerous given the reality of what is, well, then we have this law that's there to protect us from that. But it means that natural law is always more fundamental than legal law. Um, and it's good to keep that in mind. Because in the Bible, we find God, we, both metaphors are used, legal metaphors and natural metaphors, to denote God's judgment. But I submit to you that we should always interpret the legal depictions of God as judge in light of the natural, organic depictions of God, because organic is always more fundamental than, than, than the legal. Okay, I hope you're following this. On top of that, we take all of our cues about what God is like from Jesus Christ. And we ought to take our cues about what God's judgment is like from Jesus Christ. Anchor all your thinking about God in Christ. Now, Jesus, there's a sense in which, and the New Testament talks this way, in which he bore our judgment. The judgment that we deserved, he bore. When Jesus prays, Father, let this cup pass from me. Most scholars agree that that cup he's talking about was the cup of God's wrath. It's referred to in Jeremiah 25. The cup of God, God's wrath. In some sense, he experienced God's wrath on the cross, the judgment on all sin. But notice this. God the Father didn't smite Jesus. In fact, God the Father didn't lift a finger towards Jesus. Um, God the Father wasn't angry with, with, with Jesus. Rather, all of the violence and the, and the hostility and the hatred that was poured on Jesus and the abuse that was poured on Jesus, all the things he went through, every single bit of it was done by humans. God didn't lift a finger against him. Humans operating under the influence of principalities and powers, it was all done by them and not by the Father. The only thing that, the only verb that is ascribed to the Father when it concerns Jesus' crucifixion is this. The Father delivered him over, delivered him over to suffer what he suffered. And that was their agreement together. This was the plan of salvation. But the only thing the Father did was to, to turn him over. So we read, for example, and you can, I can give you dozens of passages like this, but in Romans 8, Paul says, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And since he did that, how will he, well, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over. He gave him up. That's what the father did. One verse that almost everybody knows is God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's what the father did. He gave him up. He, instead of protecting him, could have used his power to protect him, insulate him, but he didn't. 
In agreement with their plan from the beginning, he surrendered him over. But all of the violence, all the judgment, all the rest was carried out by agents other than God. Now, there's a legal dimension to God's judgment on the cross, and there's a legal dimension to all of God's judgment. Uh, we do sin when we violate God's law. Um, that's just the reality. And Jesus bore the judgment that we deserved. And so there's, there's that, that, that judicial element to this, a justice element of this. But the primary thing that's going on has to do with Jesus bearing the consequences for the sin of the world. There's an organic judgment there. He stands in our place, and he suffers the death consequence. He becomes our sin, the Bible says, and then he becomes our curse. And the curse is simply the natural negative consequence of sin. The curse is experiencing separation from God. Because sin is all separation from God. We're, we're, we separate ourselves, and so it carries with us this curse. So Jesus becomes our sin, and then Jesus becomes our curse. And he experiences that alienation that's intrinsic to all sin. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not that the Father had actually forsaken him, because this was the plan all along. But rather, as he's, he's standing in this place, bearing the sin of the world and bearing the, the death consequences that are intrinsic to all sin, he experiences from the inside that God abandonment. It shows you the authenticity of what Jesus was experiencing on, on, the, on the cross. But it wasn't the Father imposing this on him. It wasn't the Father smiting him. Now, in fact, I'll say more about this in a moment, but the Father had a grieving heart towards him. So all that the Father did was deliver him over. And in fact, when it comes to judgments, this, I submit to you, is all God ever does. It's all God ever needs to do. Uh, and he does it with a grieving heart. He turns people over. This is the dominant way that the Bible speaks about the, the judgments of God. I, I, I'll give you a, a classic passage here that illustrates this. It's Romans 1. And uh, first Paul says in Romans 1, starting in verse 18, he says, For the wrath, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. The wrath of God's been revealed. Okay, so this is what the wrath of God looks like. It's been revealed. So pay attention here, because when Paul says what the wrath of God looks like, it doesn't look like God having his finger on the smite button. Rather, Paul goes on to say that these folks that he's talking about, they, they, they worship the creature more than the creator, and they intentionally suppress the truth, and they did it over and over again. And because of that, here's the wrath of God. Paul says this three times. He says, starting with verse 24, Therefore, because of the things that they had done, worshiping the creature more than the creator and their idolatry and all there was, because of this, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. That's the wrath of God. You, you want to just continue lusting in your heart? Well, then go ahead and do that. That's the wrath of God. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. That's the wrath of God. You're going to have degrading passions? I, I, I have to let you go down that, that, that course. Uh, that's the wrath of God. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to have a debased mind and to things that should not be done. Now notice this. All three of those verses imply, they presuppose that God had up to this point been hanging on to these people. Saying, don't go down this path. This is a path of self-destruction. 
you, 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 you turn your mind towards these debased things, you engage in this behavior, it, it's going to destroy you. Now, from the Romans' perspective, who are experiencing this wrath, they probably are celebrating this. It's like, whoa, because once, once God gives up on them, God's no longer trying to keep them from going there. They're, they used to feel conviction about this stuff, but now it's like, woohoo, no more conviction. So they party on, but they're partying their way to death because the wages of sin is death. Death is the natural consequence of sin because sin is all about rejecting God, and God is life. To reject life is to choose death. And God, in his mercy, tries to protect us from the self-destructive consequences of our, our, our decisions. But see, because God is love, love is never manipulative, never coercive. God's never going to lobotomize someone's brain to force them to believe the truth. What is the value of that? And so we, throughout the biblical record, we see this where God influences people in the direction of truth as much as possible. And every time in the Bible when you find Jesus-looking depictions of God, you're seeing the, the Spirit of God breaking through. He influences people towards the truth as much as possible. But because he's not a manipulative God, a manipulative God, a God who will not do a lobotomy on people's brain to force them to believe the truth, because of that, there comes a point where God has to just accept them as they are. And, um, uh, and so that means God has to accommodate where, where, where they're at. It comes to a point where God has to just like say, I gotta let you go. He accommodates as much as he can for as long as he can, but there comes a point where if God ever sees that his mercy is simply enabling people to get further entrenched in their sin, what else is God supposed to do? Some of you who have had loved ones who have been addicted or alcoholics, you may know what this is like. Because you have a person that you really care about, you really love, and, but you see them do this self-destructive behavior again and again and again. And, 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 and you try to protect them from that. You know, to try to insulate them a little bit because you see you know, how, how bad it will be if they suffer the consequences of their decisions. So you go time and again and pick them up at the bar or post bail for them or, or clean up their vomit on the floor or, or, or whatever. But some of you know this firsthand and it hurts like, crazy, but you can come to the point where you see you're not doing them any good. All you're doing is enabling them. You're the cushion that they can always fall back on, so they just keep on using. And if you ever get to that position and realize that you're not helping them, you're hurting them, you have no choice but to let go. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've got to let them go. And you do it in the hopes that they'll turn around and the hopes that they'll, they'll learn the hard way what they couldn't learn an easier way. But you know that they've got to, they've got to hit reality. They've got to hit the ground. Um, and and, 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 and it, it, it can be heartbreaking. And just when you think they've hit the bottom, they find another level of bottom. Some of you have been on that journey, haven't you? And you invent new bottoms, you know? And, 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 and as the loved ones are looking out, it's like, how low can this go? I mean... When are they going to turn around? And sometimes it's amazing how persistent we are when we really want, want something. But uh, um, uh, uh, God's got to let them go. And as those of you who have ever dealt with addicts know, I mean, it, it breaks your heart. And that's God's heart in judgment. I want us to see this this morning. Um, God's heart, when God sees, I've got to let you go. That's the wrath of God. That's the judgment of God. But it breaks God's heart. Rather than this angry, I'll invite you, I'll get even, I'll get vengeful. I'll, you know. No, God's heart is breaking. And the reason I know that is because 
Look how Jesus responds to judgments. In Luke 19, don't have time to look at it, but in Luke 19, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. And as he's riding into Jerusalem, he gives this prophecy about this future destruction that's coming on Jerusalem. That was fulfilled in 70 AD. He's giving it ahead of time. And he's announcing how, how the people are going to, oh, it's just going to be terrible. Uh, women, children being dashed to the ground. Because the Romans are going to come in and the Romans are going to ransack the place. And Jesus sees this as the judgment of God. Now, Jesus never suggests <clears throat> that God's going to smite Jerusalem directly, that God's going to act vi violently towards Jerusalem or anything of the sort. All of the violence that's, that's part of this judgment is, 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 is carried out by the Romans, not God. But there comes a point where God, after centuries of dealing with this rebellious people, says, I've got to let you go. I've got to let you crash into reality. If that's the direction you want to go, I will not manipulate you to go otherwise. I've got to let you go this way, and it's going to be terrible. But as Jesus is talking about this terrible judgment in Luke 19, as he's riding into Jerusalem, the Bible says he's weeping. In fact, the word that's used there is the word kleo, and it can be translated wailing. He's wailing. So I want you to just picture Jesus riding in, and he's like, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you under my wings like a hen does its chicks, but you weren't willing. And now this is going to happen to you. And he's wailing as he's, as he's giving this, this prophecy because the human pain is going to be incredible. Jesus is the definitive revelation of what God is like. And keep, keep your eyes fixed on him when you're thinking about the judgment of God. And what it means is that we, if this is what God really is like in bringing judgments, then behind every ferocious, judgmental image of God that you can ever imagine, behind every judgment that God ever brought, we've got to imagine God weeping, if not wailing. Because this is happening to people that he loves. He loves them more than they love themselves. You can make the case that when God has to bring judgment, he hurts far worse than anybody else because his love is greater. And, 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 and so he loves them more than they love themselves than any other loved one lo loves them. He sees the pain and he's weeping, but he's got no choice. He's got to let this go. I got to let you go. Now, it, it's true that in the Bible, and you all know this, you find images of God that he's not weeping when he brings judgment. He's ferocious. You can find images of God in the Old Testament where uh, it's, it's just pure hatred. It's just pure vengeance. Could he make the case that in some of the portraits it's bloodlust? My sword will drink the blood of the foes, and, and it will not stop till its head is full. That is a biblical author adopting a hymn from the culture and applying it to Yahweh. So here's the thing. Everybody in the ancient Near East, when they think about deities, they think rage. They think war. They think violence. They think warrior. Uh, in the ancient Near East, and then this is the cultural context in which the Bible is written, in which the Israelites are, are, are embedded. So they think that this is how they think. Um, the highest form of praise that you could give to a God was to ascribe your violence to them. So all these folks, they never saw their gods act violently because their gods don't exist. They were the ones who act violently. But everybody throughout the ancient Near East, they attribute their violence and their victories to their God. Uh, He's the one who empowered us to do this. But you don't want to take credit yourself. You want to, and, and the more violence and the more macabre the violence and the more ferocious the image, well, the more praiseworthy is it in the context of, of the ancient Near East. My God is so great, he'll 
eat your babies and he'll flay your cows and whatever. It's just some of it's really macabre stuff. And you find some of that in the Bible. Now, when we come to this, since we ought to be reading the Bible through the lens of the cross, you know that since that's not consistent with the God who's revealed on the cross, that something else is going on here. Uh, because it doesn't line up with the love of God that's revealed on Calvary. These ancient, ferocious, ancient Near Eastern images don't look anything like Calvary. Jesus never went around showing forth that kind of wrath and, and, and acting like an ancient Near Eastern deity. What's going on there is that because God is not manipulative, won't coerce anybody, he influences people towards truth as much as possible, but there comes a point where he's got to accept them as they are. And, 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 and if they have deeply entrenched views of God, God has to put up with that. Because he's not going to manipulate them to, 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 to go otherwise. And so God stoops to bear the sin of his people in order to keep on working with them to influence them in the direction where they later on learn more truth about who God is. That's why you have a progressive revelation in the Bible. God stoops to bear their sin, and in doing that, he takes on an appearance that, that, that resembles the ugliness of their sin. So when we find these portraits of God in the Old Testament that are violent and, and, and hateful and vengeful and bloody and whatever, that to us should be a testimony of how, a, a reminder of how God was willing to stoop to bear the sin of his people. And this, folks, is exactly what God does on the cross. On the cross, God stoops to bear the sin of his people, to enter into solidarity with us. And because of that, he takes on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of the sin that he's bearing. On the cross, God looks like a guilty, God-forsaken, cursed criminal. And that's because he's standing in our place as a God-forsaken, cursed criminal. But now what we learn, if, if we read the Bible through the lens of the cross, and if we really trust that God does look like this as he's revealed on the cross, if we really trust that, then when we read the Bible now, every time we come upon these gross images, it should be a, re a reminder about the, the gross image of the cross. They're, they're, they're like literary crucifixes where God is bearing the ugly sin of his people, and that's why he's appearing in an ugly form. So what we know, learn now is that what God does on Calvary, he's been doing throughout history. Calvary just culminates this activity of God that he's always been doing to stoop to bear the sin of his people and thereby take on a, 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 an appearance that reflects the ugliness of the sin. When you can start reading the Bible that way, the whole thing becomes beautiful. It all becomes beautiful. A reminder of this how low God, God was willing to stay in covenant relationship with his people, even though, like everybody else in the ancient Near East, they thought he was capable of saying, slaughter all the women, slaughter all the children, slaughter all the animals, slaughter everybody, and I'll punish you if you don't slaughter enough. They thought that he was like that, and because he won't manipulate them otherwise, he says, I'll stay in solidarity with you to keep on influencing this, even though it's going to ruin his reputation. Just like Jesus hanging out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors, he's willing to do it, even though it trashes his reputation, because Jesus will always choose love over reputation. Uh, it, it's loving to hang out with these people as they are, so he does it. And that's what he does throughout all of history. He's covenant people. They, they view him in, in, in fallen, carnal, ancient, recent, cultural, conditioned ways. God influences them as much as possible to go in a different direction. And you see that in the Bible. But you also see that he sometimes has to accommodate. And when you start to read the Bible this way, you'll notice something else. And I, I, by the way, I'm just scratching the surface here. Uh, if you want to go deeper into this topic, I've got two books on this you can look at. Cross Vision is one. 
uh, or if you're more academic, you can look at uh, Chris Fiction of the Warrior God. But if you're looking at the Bible, reading it through the lens of the cross like this, you'll start to notice something else, and that's this. If you read it carefully, and if you read it in context, more often than not, in fact, I, I want to go as far as to say usually, when you find some of these ancient Near Eastern horrendous images of, of God in the Bible, if you read the context carefully, you'll find that more often than not, the, 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 the passage itself makes it clear that God didn't do the violence that the image is ascribing to him. So I'll give you one example of this. I could give you hundreds, but here's one. But it's a good one. So in Psalm 7, uh, 11 through 13, we read this. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. And that's a compliment in the ancient Near East. Our God gets mad every single day. If he does not relent, if he doesn't change his mind, he will sharpen his sword, he will bend and string his bow, his bow, he has prepared his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. Okay, this is classic ancient Near, East, Near Eastern deity imagery. God is the warrior. He's getting ready to bring a judgment. So what does he do? He gets out his sword, starts to sharpen it. Time to do me some slaying here. Then he gets his bow ready. And he's got his flaming arrows. Time to get some human target practice. Look at those sinners. Is this going to pick him off? And that's a judicial judgment because he's simply doing it because he's got the authority to do it. And there's, there's no relationship between the crime and the punishment. Uh, no relationship between whatever these sinners are doing and the fact that they're now going to get an arrow through their back. But that's, the, that's ancient Near Eastern imagery. So the, the, the biblical author takes this. This is how he thinks about God. This is what he says. God's up there. Can we do some flame-throwing target practice? But now if you read on, the author that now is going to talk about how or what it looks like when God shoots those flaming arrows at people and wields that sharp sword towards people. And see, here you see the, the, the spirit breaking through. And, and, and over and over again, we find this in the Bible, where the, he'll, he'll now describe the punishment in organic terms. He just gave this legal image of the, 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 the archer deity, warrior deity, but now when he goes to describe what it actually looks like, he uses organic terms. So starting in the very next verse, verse 14, he makes ready his flaming arrows, and here's what they look like. Those who are pregnant with evil conceive trouble and give birth to disillusionment. So here you find that, 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 that the punishment is related to the crime. If you're pregnant with evil because you conceived trouble, you're going to eventually give birth to disillusionment, and the disillusionment is the judgment for having conceived trouble. Testing, testing, one, two, three. I could get this. Should I turn it on and off? Or? You got it. Yeah, let's just go with the handheld. Let's see if I take it off and starts to work. Okay. Hang on. Pause. One, two. Is it, is it good? One, two. Is it on? Nope. It's on. Jesus never had this problem. 
when you hold this microphone, it gives you that old kind of preacher feeling, like the wrath of God, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Okay, where was I? Uh, okay, yeah, so we're looking at what does it actually look like when God shoots those flaming arrows and when God wields that nasty sword of his. It looks like those who are pregnant with evil conceive trouble and give birth to disillusionment. So the, there's a natural order here. If you're going to conceive trouble, if you're going to get pregnant with evil, well, as a natural consequence, you will give birth to disillusionment. And you find this kind of metaphor all over the place. James uses it. You know, sin, when it's, temptation, when it's conceived, it gives birth to this. and it, it's, it's very organic. And then he says, those who dig a hole and scoop it out fall into the pit they have made. And you find this refrain over and over again throughout the Bible, that the, the, the evil that you intend to others comes back on you. It's an organic thing. It's a natural thing. It's wired in the nature of things. It's a judgment of God because God set up the whole thing, right? So it, God created this world and ordained the laws of cause and effect. And so when you go down this path, and when God finally, with a grieving heart, lets you go down that path, it's a judgment of God because you're now going to crash into reality. And then he, said, he says, the trouble they cause recoils on them. That's their judgment. Their violence comes down on their heads. The violence they intend to others comes back on them. We find that refrain over and over again. So this is what it looks like when God shoots those arrows. This is what it looks like when God wields that sword. Yeah, the, the, the author can't get that image out of his head. God's the archer. But because of the spirit influencing him, when it comes to actually describing the judgment, he, he goes to natural terms. It's organic. We find this even in, in Jesus' uh, teaching, really the teaching that, that, that launched this whole series that we're in cross-examination, Matthew 7. Uh, do not judge if you don't want to be judged. Because the judgment you give is the judgment you're going to get. And the measure you give is the measure you're going to get. So in the end, the wrath of God is about God with a grieving heart letting us punish ourselves. In the end, sin is self-punishing. And God in his love doesn't want that to happen to us, so he tries to keep us from that. But if we're persistent, and he sees that that's just enabling us, then God with a grieving heart has to let us go. My question I want to end with is this. Do you trust? Do you trust God, the judge? When you think about God, do you think of like that picture that we looked at, something like this? Do you think of a legal authority on the throne, making decrees, pronouncing sentences, and then carrying out sentences? Those kind of images capture a truth. There's, there's, a, there's a, a legal element, a judicial element to the judgments of God, but it doesn't capture what really is going on. So if you're inclined towards, as most of us are, since we've been taught this way, to think about God sitting on the throne, just legal pronouncements, thinking that when we sin, we're sinning against his law, I encourage you to reframe that. God's trying to protect us against reality and our own stupidity and our own sinfulness that will crash against reality unless we go by his guidelines. The legal laws, the legal judgments are always in service to the organic. The organic is, is, is more fundamental. So do you trust that God has your best interest in mind? As we sang a little bit earlier, do you trust that this judge, the awesome judge of the universe, that everything he does, he's other-oriented love. This judge of the universe loves you, and he wants you to flourish. Has your best interest in mind? Can you trust that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that this God has got the kind of character where when he's got to let people go, he does it with a grieving heart? 
A weeping heart. Do you trust his character? Do you trust that he's always got your best interest in mind? He gives laws. You maybe don't always see it, but if, if, if the Lord tells us that don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die, he knows what he's talking about. Can we trust that? The serpent lies and says, ah, don't worry about that. Just do your own thing and blah, blah, blah. How we need to ignore that serpent and pay attention to the God who always has our best interests at heart. And as we are in this, you know, we, we said that, Jesus said that, that you know that, that, that winter's coming because things start to die. That's the lesson of the fig tree. Now look around, there's some indication that we're entering winter. I've shared a little bit about this last week as well, but uh, who knows what the future holds for us. Uh, things could turn around tomorrow and start improving. But right now it seems that we're in a season where things are getting worse. Uh, you look around and is, 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 do you see more life happening or more death? Uh, things are kind of starting to break down all over the place. Maybe the 97% of the climatologists tell us that weather patterns are going to get more and more extreme at a faster and faster rate into the indefinite future. So get ready for that. We could be facing a pretty rocky future here, and that should be okay with us because we live with this expectation that the judgment of God could come at any time. You see, as we head into what is likely to be a storm, or maybe it's just personal tragedies that you go through, uh, on top of what's happening on a global scale, we all deal with personal stuff. And that can be absolutely devastating sometimes. But when we're going through that storm and when everything seems shaky, can we have this confidence that God is always good, that God knows what he's doing, and that can we trust the promises that in the end it will all be worth it, in the end it will all be more than worth it. Um, However bad it gets, however nasty it gets, however out of control, people might be freaking out left and right. But can we be a people who trust that God's still on his throne, that the judge of the earth will always do the right thing, and that if he says in the end it will be more than worth it, incomparably worth it, then he's telling the truth. In fact, Paul says that the sufferings of this present age can't be compared to the glory that God has in store for those who love him. That just always blows me away. It's incomparable, absolutely incomparable. So, However horrendous it's going to be, and, and, and there could be a whole lot of human suffering going on. There already is a whole lot of human suffering going on, and it's probably going to be getting worse before it gets better. But can we trust that God says it's all going to be incomparably worth it? And I find, I don't know about you, but my heart, I have a sense of peace and confidence to the degree that I believe that. It will all in, in the end, everything will be summed up into one head, Paul says in Ephesians 1. It will be harmonized. In the end, the cross will have made peace and reconciliation among everything on earth, everything in heaven, and everything under the earth. Can we believe that? St. Teresa of Avila said this, and it's a little bit of an overstatement, but, but only a little. But she says, whatever shall be well is well already. Whatever shall be well. If I know that it will be well, if I know it will be worth it, if I know that love wins in the end, that love will define every square inch, I don't have to have a clear idea about how that's going to happen or what it's going to look like or any kind of timeline or anything of the sort. I can have a trillion questions, but I, I can hang on to this one thing. It's going to be more than worth it. And, and I, I'm finding that as this world gets shakier and shakier and shakier, and certainly America gets shakier and shakier and shakier, um, Hanging on to that promise becomes more and more precious. Do you trust 
that the judge of the world will do the right thing? Do you trust that he's good to add his word? Do you trust that, that, that his, his promises are sure? It, it comes to the point where either I choose to believe that love win, wins in the end, or I do hopeless. And I'm going to choose to live in hope. I've got good reasons for believing this. I've got good reasons for believing in Jesus. But you choose to, to put all your trust and all your hope in God's love that will win in the end, praise God. Whatever will be well is well already. I, 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 I pray that we become detectives of our own brains and notice images of God that we have that aren't in line with what we learn about God in Jesus Christ. Because to the degree that we've got those blockages there, it will interfere with our love for God. It can't help but pollute to some degree our relationship with God, which will affect the passion of your life and living for God. The more beautiful your conception of God, the more beautiful you're going to be motivated to live. The wrath of God, yeah, it's a real thing. It's a real thing, and it's a terrible thing. But uh, I hope you can now see that it's not about a God who's vengeful or wants to get even or angry or disappointed or anything of the sort. When he has to bring it, he brings it with a weeping heart. And as we'll see next week, when he brings it with a weeping heart, he does it for redemptive purposes. All right. Uh, uh, if you're here this morning and could use any kind of prayer or if you're online and there's any kind of prayer that you could use, I encourage you to get prayer online. You can have some folks there. We'll have our prayer ministers up here at the front of the auditorium if you need prayer. Um, Tuesdays, we've got a MuseCast, so you want to check out that. We've got our gathering groups. Encourage folks to get in there, meet some, some, some people. If you're going to be here next week uh, and, and you have kiddos with you, let us know so we have enough children's workers. And on that note, we need more children's workers. Please prayerfully consider volunteering uh, however much or how little you can give. Uh, it, it would be appreciated. And finally, is there any other finally thing? What? I did mention gathering groups. Mary made a mistake. I had, did I mention gathering groups? I did, I did mention it. You were listening. <laughs> All right. All right, you guys. So get all your life from God. Agree with God about every person you see has unsurpassable worth. Pray for your enemies and steward well, steward well God's creation. God bless you guys. Love you. See you next week.